Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors. And just thank you for joining us online if you're tuning in from home. And we are halfway into our series on the book of Daniel. I did have several people ask me, are you going to go beyond chapter 6? No. So starting in Colossians 1, yes, yes, we are. Yes, we're familiar with the first six chapters because they're, they're stories that engage our hearts and our minds from the time that we're, we're youth. We, we are often tempted to turn away from the second half because they are strange encounters with God that can be confusing, that take more work for us to understand. But I believe that they are good and that if we put in the extra effort, that they have a wonderful message to encourage us, to give us greater understanding of this good God that we serve and that we will be blessed for doing this. So let's continue in the book of Daniel. Before we dig into the passage, I want to tell you a story. When I was a young child, this was back in the days when children were allowed to sit in the front seat of cars, the good old days. Um, we had this one vehicle that had on the side mirror, etched in the glass, this little phrase that said, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Anybody else have a car that had that little phrase etched in there? Yeah, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. It was this warning to drivers not to completely rely on what they saw, that what was represented in the mirror, it wasn't 100% accurate, right? In this case, the other cars that you saw in the mirror, they were a lot closer to you than the mirror portrayed, so you should take caution, particularly changing lanes. Now, as a child, I thought that this little phrase was a little ominous, right? You know, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Because when you're young, there are a lot of things that seem frightening, and perhaps they're even more frightening than they look. One of the things that I was scared of as a child were dogs. And when I was about six, year old, six years old, we got a dog, a Maltese poodle named Mickey. Now, you might think, who would be scared of a small dog like that? Mickey was a different kind of dog. He wasn't a friendly little dog. In fact, we got Mickey for free from a family in our church who had bought him for their daughters, but this little dog terrorized them, so they decided to dump him onto me and my brothers. So I was excited to get this dog. That was until one evening I walked into the kitchen, and Mickey was eating from his bowl, and all of a sudden you could just sense he just went rigid and started to growl. And it was this god-awful, harsh growl from deep within the beast. And I stopped moving, and then all of a sudden he turned, and he starts snapping at my feet, and I did the only reasonable thing. I hopped up on the, to the kitchen counters. And I was stuck there. Every time that I thought of dipping my toe down onto the ground, Mickey would turn and start coming at me again. What was I to do? Well, soon enough, my brothers also entered the kitchen, and the same thing happened to them. Now all three of us were marooned up on top of the kitchen counters with nowhere to go. For all of eternity, that's where we'd spend the rest of our lives. Held hostage to this violent little monster. That was until mom came in. She assessed the situation. She walked over to the dog, told him to hush, grabbed his bowl, took it away from him, and then everything was fine. We were able to come off the kitchen counter, we were saved, and we learned two things that day. First of all, mom was fearless and far more formidable than Mickey was. Second, we learned that things weren't nearly as hopeless as we felt. 
They weren't as bad as they looked. Perhaps like drivers should not completely rely on what they see in a car's side mirror because it's not 100% accurate. Maybe we shouldn't assess our situations solely on how they look either. And this is the message of Daniel chapter 7 we're looking at this morning. Where Daniel and his family and nation, they're held hostage to one tyrannical king after another. These monstrous empires who've held them captive, not only their current lives, but also their future. But how they look, how things look, it's not completely accurate. God's people won't be subject to these beasts forever. They can have hope, and so can we. Because the powers that you fear... They're not as strong as they appear. So let's open our Bibles and look at Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind and he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that, I, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and then the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear, and it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up. And eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And it was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit. 
and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me this interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Yes, ever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beasts that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this interpretation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. Wow. Now, if you're new to the Bible, then perhaps this story seems strange to you. Even for those of us who are quite familiar with Scripture, we can be confused by what's happening in an encounter like this with all these beasts, a fiery throne, and even a talking horn. But what we need to keep in mind is the literary genre of this passage. This passage is apocalyptic literature. Now, when most of us hear this word apocalypse, perhaps we immediately picture the future destruction of the world in some sort of natural disaster or nuclear holocaust at the end of time, but that is not an accurate assessment of this type of literature. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible can be about the future, but it also can speak about the past and the present. Now, the word apocalypse simply means unveiling. And so it's revealing something to us that we don't normally see. We cannot see it. It is as if God is pulling back the curtains between heaven and earth. The veil between the physical and the spiritual realms is being removed in order to show us that what we experience or see, it's not the whole picture, that there is more going on than meets the eyes. Apocalypses are given in the Bible to impart hope to God's people, revealing that God is in control, contrary to how things look or popular opinion, that we may feel defeated or conquered, but this apocalypse tells Daniel and us that the powers that we fear, they're not as strong as they appear. Apocalyptic literature is also different, but it's related to biblical prophecy. 
Like apocalyptic literature, biblical prophecy is often misunderstood as just simply a message predicting the future. Though this can be partly true, that's not the central focus of prophecy either. You know, predicting future events only happens occasionally with biblical prophecy. So, to differentiate the two, a prophet is a messenger sent on behalf of God. So a prophecy is simply any message from God delivered through an intermediary, so the prophet. And they do this through their words or their actions. While an apocalypse is a message given directly from God, usually through a dream or a vision, and the receiver isn't necessarily even told to go out and tell others, but usually to write it down. Now, the problem that we can create when we treat an apocalypse like Daniel 7 or even the book of Revelation as simply a book that's forecasting future events is that we strip it of its hope-giving message that was intended for the original audience, and we even strip it of its relevance for us today. We're tempted to just start looking for signs that the end is drawing nigh. But this is not only unwise, this is actually disobedient when we do this. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, they ask Jesus, they say, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Then in Mark 13, Jesus says to the disciples about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father Our job is to be on guard, be alert, because we don't know when that time will come. So as we approach apocalyptic literature, let's remember it's a message about revealing heaven's perspective on what's taking place on earth, not about giving us obscure clues about when history will come to an end. Now, to also understand apocalyptic literature's message, we need to recognize that it is full of rich metaphors and symbols. It delivers its message through analogies and images that were familiar to its original audience. So it's not surprising then that this passage seems strange to us because these images and analogies weren't intended for us. We're not the original audience, right? They were for an audience thousands of years ago living in a different country, right, with a completely different culture. But many of us who grew up, let's say, during the era of the Cold War, we would quickly recognize the animals depicted in this political cartoon, right? We would look at that and easily say, oh yeah, well that's the United States and that's the Soviet Union, right? Though we might not be 100% sure of what the message is that the cartoonist is trying to portray. Similarly, for Daniel, when it comes to the visions that he saw, right, he would have been familiar with a lot of the common the images from common themes that were found in the Bible or even symbols that were familiar to him in that Near Eastern culture that he lived in. So Daniel has some understanding of what these symbols represented. Though as we see by the end of the chapter, even he isn't 100% sure of what message is being conveyed to him. So let's dive in and see if we can gain some insight. 
The first thing we notice about this dream is that it takes place in the reign of Belshazzar. So he was the ruler of Babylon decades after Nebuchadnezzar had gone to Jerusalem, destroyed it, and taken its citizens back to Babylon as exiles. So he had these citizens taken captive. Now this context is essential for us to understand the dream, but also Daniel's feelings about his current circumstances and his future. He must have felt hopeless at times, like he was subject to these unconquerable, chaotic kingdoms that had oppressed him and his people. And that's just what this dream is all about, kings and kingdoms. In verse 15 and 18, Daniel approaches this messenger of God and asks him for an interpretation of the vision. And he's told quite simply that the four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, ever and ever. So this vision that is given to a man, captive to an evil kingdom, oppressed by wicked kings, has everything to do with kingdoms and kings. But it's given to impart hope, to reveal that God is in control, contrary to how things look, and to communicate to Daniel the powers that he fears, they're not as strong as they appear. Daniel then begins to describe his vision in verses 2 and 3, saying that in my vision at night I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven that were churning up the great sea and four great beasts, each different from the others. They came up out of the sea. So the first image that Daniel observes is this turbulent sea that's moving in all directions because wind is blowing at it from every side. Now the sea was a symbol of chaos and destruction in Daniel's times. The Israelite people were never known as being great seafaring people and even though some of Jesus' disciples would have been, were fishermen, even at that time the Jewish people were very superstitious about the sea. It was dangerous and mysterious. It was an untamable force that only God could control. So this description of the sea at the beginning of Daniel's vision, it evokes feelings of horror inside Daniel, an anticipation of evil. It also tells us of the origins of these four beasts, right? They come out of chaos. They are birthed from evil, so we should anticipate that they will be vile beasts. These will be evil kingdoms. Verse 4 says, The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. So lions, they're known for their majesty, And eagles are known for their great power. And so this kingdom has incredible dominion and strength. But unlike other beasts, this one stands and it it thinks like a human. But let's not be fooled. This is no human kingdom, right? Despite evidence to the contrary, this kingdom doesn't have any humanity in it. It is still beastly. In verse 5 it says, And there before me was a second beast who looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to get up and eat your fill of flesh. So bears are animals known for having incredible strength. And when they rise up, it indicates that they're ready to attack. So this bear 
that already has a mouthful of flesh. It has three ribs in its mouth, showing that it has already devoured previous victims, yet its appetite still isn't satisfied. It's ready to pounce, and it's encouraged by some voice to keep ravaging, right? And it's a violent kingdom. And we don't know who this voice is that is urging it on. Then in verse 6, Daniel describes the third beast, saying, After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looks like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So leopards, they're known for stalking their prey, for their unexpected attacks. Perhaps this is suggesting that this kingdom's rise to power was unexpected by those that it conquered. And the fact that it has four wings of a bird on its back demonstrates that it came swiftly. The four heads means that this kingdom is looking in all directions for its prey in order to expand its empire. But interestingly, similar to the second beast, the bear, there's some outside help for this beast. The authority is given to it. This kingdom is subject to a higher power. It hasn't achieved this dominion on its own ability. And again, we are not told who is the one who is empowering this beastly kingdom. And finally, in verse 7 and 8, Daniel sees the fourth and final beast. And this beast is unlike any other, and it's unlike any found on the earth. All the other ones, it's like a lion, it's like a bear, it's like a leopard, but not this one. Daniel says it was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So this fourth beast, it's the worst of them all. It's the mega beast. And verse 7 says it has iron teeth, and later on in verse 19 it says that it has bronze claws. And so the metallic composition of its teeth and its claws, it demonstrates that it has destructive power, that it's ruthless. And then it has these horns, right? And horns are representative of strength and power. Think about the, the horns on a bull. But rather than just two, this beast has ten horns. And ten in the Bible is a number for completeness. And so this beast has complete power or extraordinary power. Then as if this beast isn't weird enough, a little horn pops up on its head, displacing three of the first ten horns, and this little horn has eyes and a mouth that speaks boastfully. Eyes are symbols of intelligence, and a mouth that speaks boastfully simply represents great arrogance. And in verse 24 to 25, Daniel is then informed by the messenger of God that the ten horns represent ten kings who will come from the fourth kingdom and that this little horn is an eleventh king who will displace three, and that the final king will speak against God and oppress his people. And herein lies the temptation for us in this passage 
right? We're informed that these beastly kingdoms who are gruesome and awful and have this terrible power to cause tremendous suffering. We're, we're told that the, the horns represent kings who oppress God's people. And so readers of this text were enticed to get caught up in guessing which kingdoms are represented by which beasts and which kings represent which horns. And so many books have been written on such things and some of them are insightful but many of them are not. And some people think, you know, like one of the insightful ones that I read about was that the first beast represents Babylon. It had great dominion and power and, and just like the first beast in this vision does and just like, um, you remember how it says it stood up and thought like a man. Remember way back when we did the series on Daniel 4, how Nebuchadnezzar, he was arrogant and he became like a beast but eventually he you know he looked up to heaven and he stood up and thought like a man again oh it's pretty insightful so maybe the first beast is nebuchadnezzar in babylon others have identified this 11th boastful horn as antichius the fourth epiphanes he's this greek king who issued a decree forbidding jewish practices and persecuting the jewish people however in the vision that we just read the destruction of this 11th king is supposed to usher in the kingdom of God for good. And I think that we can all agree that this hasn't completely happened yet. So this has led others then to insist that this 11th king to come, that that's the Antichrist, right? Who will be defeated at the conclusion of history, a point in time that we haven't arrived at yet. So which is it speaking of? Is it past? Is it the future? Or maybe it's talking about things that are happening on here on earth right now. I think maybe all three. Remember, apocalyptic literature in the Bible can speak about the past, the present, and the future. And symbols aren't just restricted to a certain time, and they don't necessarily even point to a specific character in history. But they represent a type. These beastly kingdoms represent a type, the kinds of kingdoms and kings that we will experience here on earth. Theologian Tremper Longman, he says, the vision's multi-valued imagery intends to prohibit definitive historical identifications. And this is an intentional effect of the imagery of this vision. You see, we're not supposed to simply just identify each beast and horn with a specific earthly empire or ruler. Rather, this fourfold pattern simply informs us that evil kingdoms will succeed each other one after another until the end of time when God will intervene and once and for all judge evil and bring into his kingdom into existence for good. But until then, we need to recognize that this is God's plan. And until then, we need to prepare for persecution. And this can be disheartening. But this is not the end of the vision. See, and the beasts and the horns, they're not even the central part of this vision. Remember, the powers that you fear, they're not as strong as they appear. Just as quickly as these beasts show up, so do a pair of thrones. 
right? And on one of them is the Ancient of Days. Now, we may not have certainty about who these beasts represent, but there is no doubt about who this is who's sitting on this throne. The picture of the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne is God Almighty sitting at his bench ready to, to fulfill his role as judge. He is ready to pronounce judgment on these evil powers and this is the scene that is supposed to be central and the dominant one of Daniel's vision. We know that this is God seated on his throne because of his white hair like wool which is symbolic of great wisdom. And I think there's many of us in this room who are like, yes, yes it does. We also know that this is him based on his white clothing which is symbolic of his righteousness. The throne that God sits upon, or perhaps we should say rides upon, because this throne has wheels, is composed of fire, displaying the power of God's judgment. And then the thousands upon thousands, or ten thousand times ten thousands of attendants, they represent the heavenly multitudes that have gathered to serve God and to hear him pronounce the just verdict on these beastly kingdoms And the verdict, it doesn't take long to be delivered. As soon as the court is seated and the books are opened, the fourth beast is destroyed, tossed into the fire. And the other three kingdoms, they don't even have all that long either. Their time is short and their power is stripped of them. And then we read in verses 13 and 14, some of the most significant verses in our entire Bible. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Commentator Joyce Baldwin, she says, this chapter has been called the center of gravity in the entire book of Daniel. And she goes on to say that this passage is one of the summits of all of Scripture. I love that. Who is this one who is like a son of man? This phrase, like a son of man, this stresses the humanity of this figure, but the first appearance of him is coming on the clouds of heaven, right? This is an indicator that though he is like a man, this is no mere mortal. When we think about passages in scripture that indicate God being in a cloud of heaven, it's like when the Israelites showed up at Mount Sinai and God envelops Mount Sinai in a cloud. Or when he he leads them, Throughout the desert to the promised land, he leads them through a fire by night, but by a cloud by day. The Son of Man can also approach the Ancient of Days. This also shows us that he is unique, right? The Bible tells us that God radiates power that would simply destroy any human that would approach him. Exodus 33, God says, For no one can see me and live. 1 Timothy 6, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one can see, has seen, or can see. But this Son of Man, he can see him. He can walk into his presence. 
Finally, it says about this one, like a son of man, is given glory and worshipped and has God's authority and everlasting dominion. Think about that. Think about how that is in sharp contrast to the limited reign of these beasts and their kingdoms. And if that's the case, then why should we focus on them? Right? Why should we obsess about beasts and horns when it's the ancient of days and this son of man that deserves all of our attention? Our efforts should be focused on how they alter history, how they hold the whole world in their hands, not on us trying to decipher who these beasts and horns are. See, unfortunately for Daniel, this vision is so frightening and his thoughts are so disturbing that he cannot be consoled. At this time in his life, he's already experienced the oppression of several ruthless tyrants and this idea that God's people will continue to suffer. It's frightening for him. But this vision was given to him to impart hope, to reveal that God's people won't be oppressed forever. They will be liberated one day and it will be for good. And though these tyrants' reigns seem secure, Daniel, remember that the powers that you fear, they're not as strong as they appear. And we may never be given a dream like Daniel had here, but I think we've been given something even better. The good news of Jesus. See, 200 years after Daniel, Jesus shows up on the scene and he is proclaiming good news. Freedom for the captive and the oppressed. And though we often refer to Jesus as Lord, Savior, Christ, or Messiah, the title that he chose to pick for himself, that he loved the most, was Son of Man. Jesus identifies himself as this figure in Daniel chapter 7, who comes on the clouds of heaven, who sits on the throne next to the Ancient of Days and has given all glory, honor, and power. But perhaps you're wondering, well, when did that fourth beast get destroyed? I thought that in the vision, the Son of Man was seated beside God after the fourth beast was tossed into the blazing fire. The Gospels say that Jesus dealt the death blow to the mega beast when he was crucified on the cross. In Colossians 2, it says, And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. You see, these beasts, they gain their kingdoms by bringing destruction, by devouring others in order to rule over them. But we're not supposed to behave like that. People were made in the image of God. We're not supposed to devour one another. We're supposed to be humane. But having rebelled from God's ways and chosen to act on instinct, just like animals do, right? Doing what comes naturally to us in order to, you know, to preserve ourselves, to get ahead. We dominate and devour others. It's not surprising. It's been like this from the very beginning. Remember that voice that told that second kingdom, get up, eat. The one that empowered the third kingdom. You know, there was this snake in the garden that told the very first humans that they should just take the fruit for themselves. There's always been this beastly voice in our heads, this monstrous power tempting us, urging us on to get up and to eat our own fill of flesh. But Jesus isn't beastly. 
As the perfect image of God, the Son of Man is the most humane person ever to walk the earth. And rather than overcoming his enemies by devouring them, Jesus defeats them by allowing himself to be killed. He allowed himself to be swallowed up in death only to deliver the fatal blow to death and the devil by his death on the cross. And Jesus' death won the decisive victory over the evil, beastly kingdoms of this world. Some of us may be wondering, but if that's true, then why do we continue to suffer? Like, why does one country still invade another? How is it then that a man's able to go into a school with a gun? I don't know why. Well, I do know why. It's because we're sinful. But though the guilty verdict has been delivered, Daniel 7.12 says God is allowing these beastly kingdoms to to live for a period of time, and we don't know when, but their time will eventually be up when Jesus returns, coming on the clouds, when we least expect it. And when he does return, it will mark the end to their rule, but his dominion will never end. That will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And if we put our faith and hope in Jesus then we can share in that victory too and we can reign with him. I love that verse 18. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I hope that we understand that these beasts, these kingdoms, they're not only talking about governments and rulers, right? They are signs. Beasts represent any type of institutional rebellion towards God. It can be oppressive financial or even religious organizations, right? The beast is felt in unjust laws or represented in all discriminatory attitudes and beliefs, such as racism or sexism, but also nationalism, even denominationalism. The beast is in those things that rob us of life, like diseases, like cancer. And one day, God's going to do away with all of these things. Come, Lord Jesus. But here's the thing. We can't just be aware of the beasts that threaten us from, like, out there. We also need to be aware of the beasts from within. You see, inside each one of us is this instinct to devour others in order to get our way at the expense of someone else. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another as humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbors as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other. What does that sound like? Watch out, or you will destroy one another. So we have to be aware of the beasts within. I remember when my friend Kevin, he got engaged to be married, and he was telling me how his dad, his dad wasn't known for giving him you know, fatherly advice, but he wanted to try. So he pulled Kevin aside and he wanted him during his engagement time to, you know, maintain his sexual integrity. So he didn't know exactly what to say. So he said to Kevin, he said, you know, son, just make sure you uh, tame the beast. 
We had a good laugh about that, right? Tame, tame the beast, right? But see, when it comes to beasts within, we cannot tame them. And we're not supposed to try as if we can domesticate or we can like house train sin and temptation so that we can coexist happily together with it. We're not called to tame or master beasts. We are to be rid of it. And only Jesus can transform us and rid us and this world that we live in of all the beastly powers of sin. And so Jesus invites us to follow him, to walk with him. He says that if we do that, then he will rid us of the beasts within. 1 John 1, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And so we can walk with Jesus as we walk with one another. I was talking with Dave Barker before the service and we were just reminding each other that we never walk alone. You can ask him, he's got a good song about that. So rather than losing heart, we need, and rather than focusing on the beasts like Daniel did, let's be filled with hope and let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the Son of Man who has all sovereign power. And by walking with him and making him the center of our attention, we will see that the powers that we fear, they're not as strong as they appear.